Welcome to the Talking Teachers. I'm Joe Burkmar. And I'm Lorna Good. At this point we'd like to welcome Mal Krishnasamy, Sam Berry. We've got Andy Buck. And welcome to Leonie Hurrell. Ross Morrison-McGill. Alex Moore. Yeah, Tom Sherrington. Yeah. We've got Hal Roberts today. So my name's James Coleman. My name's Caroline Doulon. I'm a senior HMI. So let's get ready to shoot the breeze, spill the beans, chew the fat and talk shop. We have managed to get Ollie Caviglioli. Now I have been practicing that name. Um, <laughs> as, as someone who also has an, uh, a not a run-of-the-mill surname, yeah. I have sympathy with people <laughs> who, uh, who have difficult names. But... His book, Dual Coding with Teachers, I read this in half term and recommended it to you, Lorna. Yeah. And it genuinely, and I'm not exaggerating here, I think you hear this sort of thing quite a bit with, with um, all the sort of edgy books out there at the moment, but it's genuinely changed the way I teach. Yeah. That is, and specifically about how I present information. I think the, the brilliant thing about this book is how it works on a practical level. Um, a lot of edgy books out there you'll read and it does take a little bit of time to implement, to get through the information, What, how are you going to apply that to your, to your, your own classroom, your learners. But with this book, it's filled with strategies that work so quickly and you get that, it's not all about instant gratification mm -hmm. is it, but you do get that instant gratification of seeing students responding to your your lessons a lot more quickly which I think is just brilliant I think yeah for me it's the simplicity of it the accessibility of it and like you say the turnaround it's almost a do a do and don't at times that make you pair pair back all of your resources and really think do I need that picture do I need that animation are my slides relevant to to what I'm actually focusing on and I think that that can can have a really huge impact and it's not something I'd even thought about if I'm being honest until I picked this book up I'd just been a become a bit of a slave to to Microsoft and I designed PowerPoints how I think that they should look based on what PowerPoint are telling mm. me how to how to make it absolutely and I, I would say I was almost the sort of antithesis of, of what um, Ollie's saying in his book I sort of went overboard with animations and images and colours because I thought that's how to catch their attention but actually I yeah I was doing completely the wrong thing I was overloading their you know the student's mind I was giving out the wrong information when actually I should have just been using these simple graphics these pertinent images and icons which connect to what I want them to to learn and rather than them gazing at this really busy PowerPoint and not really listening to what I'm saying, the simplicity of the images that I use now connected to the information that I am giving them, that they are more attentive. I, I love the fact that he's had a really um, varied past as well in the fact that he's worked in special needs edu education, he's worked in architecture, design, graphic design. He's got a really interesting back catalogue of skills and sometimes I think people in education fall into this trap of going oh but it's education um, educational snobbery sometimes yeah. where people don't understand because it's education and to a certain extent sometimes that's right but but Ollie has such a wealth of knowledge from such a varied background it kind of attacks that feeling of we need to be looking outside of education to make things work 
for these students now? And I think his website is amazing, ollicav.com. I think 95% of it is free to download. It gives you examples of how to structure things and, and templates that you can use. It is brilliant. So um, so have a look on ollicav.com, uh, O-L-I-C-A-V.com, and see if anything's on there that you can download and, and take for free. Wonderful. Let's see what he's got to say. I can't wait. So we'd like to welcome Oliver Caviglioli, um, dual coding guru today. Um, nice to see you, Ollie. Hello, nice to speak to you both. So first question, Ollie, why did you feel like you wanted to write the book and uh, what have teachers told you that they've, they've got from it so far? Okay, first of all, I, didn't really, I really didn't want to write a book. I, I wrote a book 20 years ago and it was hard work. I didn't want to go through it all over again. <laughs> but I felt that visuals had been had a toxic relationship with uh, things like uh, accelerated learning. It was all coloured pencils and dendrites, in sort of magical thinking. And then with the rediscovery, or perhaps the discovery of most people of cognitive science, belated discovery of cognitive science, and the term dual coding, I saw there was an opportunity to present it in this framework. So instead of it being this primary practice where we all get our coloured pencils out, it was seen as being serious and had direct impact on how we structure and communicate and assimilate information and as knowledge had no was no longer a dirty word and as we no longer believed the only slightly inaccurate interpretation of Bloom's taxonomy where we sneered at the mere notion of memory and knowledge and could only deal with things like creativity and synthesis I thought the time was as right as it has ever been in my career to take a serious look at uh, using dual coding um, and why I thought it was important was because well because it has such an effect and it's been um, a top ranking strategy for decades and decades but as teachers weren't looking well, the education sector wasn't looking at a whole variety of evidence only looking at some those areas which they liked I just thought it was good timing um, because teachers deal with knowledge and they have to make a decision on how are they going to structure it to make it easier to understand and how are they going to communicate it so that it doesn't go over children's head and cause them overload and it seemed just an, an, an opportune time to do that sorry that was a very long-winded answer no that's fine um very interestingly, a few years ago, I was given some CPD on writing presentations for students. And one of the things that the uh, person giving the CPD said was basically put lots of colours, lots of animations into your PowerPoints to engage and capture the interest of the students. And actually reading through your book, I really worry that sort of a few years ago, maybe I wasn't pitching it in the right way to allow students to access the information and the knowledge. Why do you think teachers made that mistake? Well, what's always got my father an architect, so I was brought up with design, just ins and outs. And people who are architects, they're just obsessed with design. I'm talking about everything. Tables, the design on how they relay information on the ingredients of cornflakes packets, just everything is design. So when I and I'm talking about in the mid 70s when I started teaching, I used to hear teachers and head teachers and local authority advisors lay down the law about displays, for example, 
And I just thought straight away, you have no validity in making such authoritative claims because you're actually ignorant, just ignorant. And for decades, that's been the case. People in authority in education um, had the power to make people follow their, their whims and they were deluded and they were ignorant. And it's been going on for a very long time, right up until what you just described. So, but there's two levels of ignorance as well. There's that. Also the cognitive science who talk about dual coding, despite their best efforts, are unable to demonstrate or you know walk the talk because what they haven't done is they haven't looked at the profession that has found out about um, cognitive load for the last decades. They're two decades ahead of us in many respects, and that's the graphics industry or editorial design, people who put magazines and newspapers and websites together. They just know so much more. They know how to apply these principles. And for some reason, it seems that no one in any of the school's art departments or graphics departments or CDT departments, whatever they were called then, took a lead. And so you got people solely on the, on the basis of their authority could tell you nonsense. And I think that's, for me, that's the big thing that came out of my um, reading of the book, that I'd become a bit of a slave to PowerPoint um, themes that PowerPoint yes. is suggesting. And, and how can it be wrong if it's from Microsoft and if that's how it's supposed to be displayed with the title bigger at the top and then lots of text and bullet points all the time, then I've just kind of assumed and got into a bit of a rut, I think, about how I present the information. And actually, yeah. I, I now look at my presentations and genuinely cringe following the reading of, of, of your book. And it's had Good. a massive a massive impact on the way that I am presenting information and then the output and the retrieval and the recall that I'm seeing from the students has massively increased. Has it? Oh, that's that's just fantastic. Yeah. So today, yeah, for example, so today, for example, I had an A level PE yeah. lesson, and um, typically a concept that is really difficult for um, students that I've taught in the past to grasp is the relationship between acceleration, momentum, and velocity. And I did that oh, on yeah. one page and uh, had an icon for for every um every one of those aspects and then um that i made sure that i went through the process and um showed them my thinking exposed them to to how i had thought and structured it in a, in a hierarchy with velocity as the key element and that was massive they it took about 20 minutes whereas normally that would take at least the whole lesson for them to understand the the interrelationships that's great. That's really, really great. One of the things that this sort of work forces teachers to do, I don't remember two, three, four, five years ago when knowledge organizers first came in, what was reported, it was quite a challenge to teachers. You, you know, they were basically, they were challenged. You know, I teach a subject for three years and you're asking me to get it onto one side of A4. You know, that was yeah. an intellectual challenge where they had to really identify the key concepts that held all the details together. Creating a visual explanation, a structure, does the same thing, even more so. It's not possible to create a graphic unless you really understand it. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, it's easier for the students to understand it because the teachers really worked hard. It's very easy just to string together words. And with a great vocabulary and a posh voice, it sounds very impressive. 
but actually, let me tell you, um, well, I, I take notes of people giving talks live and Daisy Christodoulou is by far the easiest to take notes because she is so, so well organized and logical and presents her argument in clear step-by-step -step progression. Some 20 years ago, I had to do a public, something public, digital. So it was, it was really quite ahead of the curve. And I couldn't do it because the guy who was a very famous speaker wasn't saying anything. They're just making jokes, making right. apple pie statements. There was no coherence. There, there was no content. Um, yeah. So what you were doing is just like that's just perfect. Yeah. Well, and I think it's had a it's had a really positive impact on the students. And actually, um, so I've delivered a couple of CPD sessions. Not that I'm an expert in any way, but just from kind of my reading of the book. And now I'm starting to see that around the school. And I know that you've done some bits, Lorna, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, what I found really powerful about um, the dual coding is um, I used it with an English class and I gave them some images that were connected to themes within A Christmas Carol. Um, and I asked them to use their knowledge retrieval to connect to the images. And they were coming out with language yes. that they hadn't used for, you know, for three or four previous lessons just the power of that image triggered words like avaricious parsimonious and then that image allowed them to link that to the rest of the text in a way that i'd just not seen them do when i'd been very verbose or given them lots of sheets with lots of details just the power of that image for them to connect their learning to was was really really brilliant so so, Ollie, we've probably gone about this in the wrong That's in the wrong fantastic. way, really. Would you mind now we've given lots of examples? Um, would you mind just kind of summarising what is dual coding? If if people are completely yeah. new to the to the concept, what is dual coding? Well, it actually is easier for me now because you've given me two examples that I want to talk about. Um, dual coding itself, from Alan Pivio, is simply, and I'm going to expand what I mean by simply, is simply the creating what he calls associative links, connections, between information that come in visually and those that come in through the auditory channel. So for evolutionary reasons, we, take, we have two separate independent information channels. And they, would, they, they remain independent. They can work simultaneously and they can create a kind of a pairing. There's no information transfer from one channel to the other, but they can create links. And as we, the word dual encoding means dual means two, obviously, and coding means encoding, which is a psychologist's word for learning. So if you take in a word and an image as one unit of meaning, then you have doubled the encoding process. And Paul Kirshner calls that double-barreled learning because it leaves a double memory trace. And therefore, as a consequence, you double the chances of it being retrieved. Now, what people don't discuss is that and Pavio spent four decades trying to break his theory, and that included latterly um, research into neuroscience, you know, and it's an unbelievably robust theory. And, and yet people don't acknowledge that the content he was dealing with, that he was making his subjects remember, was very simple, cognitively unchallenging material, like uh, vocabulary lists, nonsense words, etc., which is fine because that's what Ebbinghaus did as well. It means we, he knows he is testing retrieval and the whole encoding process. He's not testing understanding. And really, if that was all there was to it, and it's very powerful, I'd have nothing to write a book out. I could write it on two pages. Yeah. 
I wouldn't go and do a training course because it's all over in 10 minutes. There's nothing more to say. Stick an image with a word that that's appropriate. A couple of strategies on how to better merge them, different ways to retrieve it. And that's the end of the story. However, what Paivio also did, he said that the structure of visual and auditory information causes a different type of processing. So that verbal information, you'd be surprised, won't be surprised to know, is sequential in nature. It is sequential, this and this and this and this. And to make sense, all those sequences are glued together with grammar or syntax. And he says that it in itself has cognitive challenges. Reading's hard. You have to remember a lot of things to make sense. You have to, I mean, for example, sometimes I give myself some brain gym. I read Fitzgibbon's Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. You know, I have a sentence that, that's 10 lines long. So when you do something rather beyond what you normally read, you understand how reading is difficult for children. Visual information, by contrast, is nonlinear. And he says it is simultaneously or sometimes synchronously um, processed. Let's say if you imagine now looking at a diagram, um, that diagram you drew for your A-level PE students, they would be looking at several elements of the diagram at one time. And in looking at several of them at one time, the mind automatically processes it. And back in the 1920s, Bertrand Russell, you know, last century's British greatest philosopher, he said, when you look at the diagram, all the elements within it are available to you in one glance and you understand it as a gestalt in one glance. And then he says to quote him, if you want to um, communicate that those relationships in text, I said he used the word concatenation, you know, a chaining together of words, you have to use compensatingly complex syntax. So what is often appears very complex in speech and writing is often far simpler conceptually. And it's the second aspect that occupies me. You could say it isn't dual coding because Pivio didn't research it, but he did identify the structural difference of it. He also gives a bit of an intellectual history to show that during the Enlightenment period, the philosophers were also discussing about the nature of ideas when they're strung together, as opposed to the nature of ideas when they're grouped together. A modern analogy might even be the sat-nav versus a map. And neuroscience now is, has been investigating whether mice in a, my, in a maze, whether they remember a series of turns or whether they build a cognitive map. Right, okay. Um, and they build the, they build the letter, by the way. And that's an hour, and neuroscience has identified the entorhinal part of the brain at the very front. We know about this because people with Alzheimer's lose their sense of place and we can identify it. Neuroscientists are now thinking that actually the very mechanism and cells we have in our brain that identify place are the same ones that deal with the construction of, and, and recall of, of ideas. Okay. So we group together ideas in the same way that we organize objects in space. So if I finish that off, um, George Lakoff wrote a book in 1980s called Metaphors We Live By and has continued to work on that over the decades. And he says human beings regard ideas as objects. And so the reason why 
these work on dual coding is so crucial isn't just because it's visual, it's because it's visual spatial. It's the spatial arrangement of ideas. And if we think of the word now, idea object, so all those words you wrote on your A-level PE and the, and the images, they are single units or ide an idea yeah. object. And those objects are arranged in certain permutation. And we naturally have principles whereby a Gestalt principle of proximity, proximity is similarity. So those items in your PE map, those items that were close together had more similarity conceptually than those that were far apart. Okay. So we're able to easily read a map all in one go. And because of those links, they're able to then recall that information because of everything that goes with that image. Particularly so. I don't know if you've attended any of my courses recently, but I've introduced something that I did over a decade ago. As they summarize a map to, to their peer, which they have drawn by copying off the board, there's nothing wrong with copying, they also trace it with the index finger of their writing hand. So they trace the map under the part of the branch that they're elaborating and expanding to their partner. And their partner, while they're listening, is, is tracing their own map. And now, I don't know whether you noticed Sweller and his colleagues in, wrote an article and put it on the web for free, Cognitive Load Theory 20 years later, and they have acknowledged the power of what they call embodied cognition, which is to say the power of drawing, tracing, and making gestures, which, by the way, is powerful for both teachers and students. Teachers who gesture more are more effective in their explanations. Students who gesture in the form of tracing or gestures in the air have another medium through which they can capture information. And the fascinating part is that the information we capture via our bodies is outsourced working memory. So it is more than our normal working memory, but it doesn't have any impact on working memory. So your working memory is full, say four chunks of information, four slots, and you can use your body. So it's not instead of your working memory, it doesn't take up working memory. It gives you work more working memory and leaves your working memory in your mind untouched. Unbelievable. Okay. Unbelievable. That is, that is really a good point, actually, because um, my youngest son, we're teaching yes. him to read and write and recognise letters. And one of the ways of doing that and helping him with spelling is to trace the letters with his finger. So to get that physical memory of, yes. of those words. Um, and I also saw something on Twitter this Indeed. week where um, a teacher was doing exactly what you said. They'd got um, a, a mind map in place and they were getting the students to trace the connections with their finger um, so they could link all these ideas. I just wonder what happens between primary and infant and junior schools and secondary schools that we end up just sitting kids at desks and expecting them to just listen and read lots of information and then know it. I wonder, I'm just interested in what you think about where that disconnect comes from. I think in primary schools, so what, we, what we talk about is not new. It's been for centuries. And in the early mid part of, of last century, it was called multi-sensory learning. And then as we became more sophisticated, we, we poo-pooed it as some kind of primary magical thinking. Because now, it has cognitive science behind it. Oh, and it's now it's now called embodied cognition. So embodied cognition is good. Multisensory learning, poo, boo. Um, you know, we have fads. We need we need things to be tarted up with scientific names. 
Um, but the thing that I come back to, I've got two things I want to tell you. One is that, oh, a decade ago, I was working with an American and he was a principal of a school for children with little or no sight. And he uses graphic organizer. He put them in an embossing machine and they access the same spatial information arrangement organization that your students did. But of course, um, accessing it only via your kinesthetic bodily access points is far harder than accessing it through your mm. body and your eyes. But it's still the same thing. And so we need to stop still living in the Cartesian dualism of having a mind and having a body. We don't have bodies. We are bodies. And our bodies take in information. And it's absolutely bonkers not to exploit that. Yeah. <clears throat> and as, I, as I'm doing more and more courses, I'm, and as Twitter's so effective, I'm seeing reports of uh, secondary teachers a lot, even secondary head teachers who have been so excited by this, I jump back in the classroom to try it all out, which is really great news. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, for anyone who hasn't read the book, which by by Twitter you would expect to almost be nobody now, like I've, everyone is talking about your book, which must be hugely gratifying for you. But yes, I think yes. the reason that it's brilliant is because it lays out obviously clearly the layout is superb and it's really easy to digest the information and it's really complex ideas but presented in a way that is so effective but also you give um, a structure to where you should be accessing the book uh, yes. very early on so if you're a novice this is what I recommend start here um, access um, so you start with designing gu designing guides and documents and then moving into to PowerPoint slides and things so for anyone who is listening to this thinking that you're interested and you've seen some things on Twitter that people are sharing then the book will allow you to be creating those those high quality resources really quickly and I mean I was I spent I spent about four or five hours in the half term reading and designing off the back and created some excellent uh, resources that I'm now using. So I think that is testament to how good the book is. That's really, really gratifying. With regard that um, those reading routes, that exemplifies a design process. So we often get very abstract about the design process. You know, if we were a design team and we were designing chairs, I'd want to know how big are the backsides? You know, is it a British or an American audience who have bigger backsides? <laughs> I want to know uh, how long are they going to sit on it? Are they going to watch TV for several hours or are they waiting in the dentist waiting room? Then I want to know, you know, how much money have we got? How long have we got to do it? So all these things, you're looking at the final experience. So I looked at my experience of reading and I'm really disappointed with education books. Um, I'm still peeved that educators still consider themselves experts in every subject. So, for example, there are some world-class experts on reading. And you go on their websites and on their websites, the lines massively exceed what the rest of the world know is the most efficient maximum for reading. So between 75 and 90 characters, that's including gaps. Any longer than that, and reading gets harder because you've got further to go to the beginning of the next line. And they repeat these simple mistakes. So most of the principles in the book are really simple, simple graphic principles, but that I've tied to the psychology of it you know the cognitive science but i think the link for me the link to magazines and me kind of realizing that that they are 
the perfect example of of oh great producing a lot of information on one page but it's still being friendly for the for the user yes that that has changed the way that i am presenting almost everything and that link for me is, has been really powerful in terms of thinking about the end user when i'm i'm creating resources that's great when i was a kid at one stage i thought i wanted to be a film director so i remember going to the cinema and say right i'm going to study how films are made and within a minute i was gone i was involved in the film and so the one of the problems with things that are really well designed is you don't see the design so for example um on bbc the news at six at ten the script writers are so fantastic they can appeal to an incredible wide range of people and they write so well you don't notice how brilliant the, the writing is they're talking to children they're talking to old age pensioners they're talking to uneducated and professors and yet the writing fits everybody so perfect you don't notice it magazines are so brilliant at achieving their task that you don't notice you don't notice the design the structure the way it's done until now of course all of a sudden all the so-called secrets are in front of your eyes and you can just copy, pinch. Perfect. So my wife teaches special needs um, students and unsurprisingly, unfortunately, part of the job is doing some work at home. So I was making a, a PowerPoint yes. using um, images from the Noun Project and um, she said, oh, we're doing that. We use those for, for PECs. Um, and yes. I, I wondered whether your... Um, your background in special special educational need was did that make you more susceptible to realizing these things than than other people do you think yeah i mean and i eventually ended up being a head of a severe learning difficulty school so you know the culture was visual i really regret that i didn't start special schools a little bit earlier just before the makaton symbols were designed because i think they're awful they're so ugly so ugly um and they could be so much better. Um, and so you can see when they're using pegs, they're just picking up icons everywhere, and which is fine. But ultimately, you want all the icons to be the si similar design. So there's coherence between them. They're all different, but you can see. So one of the problems that teachers used to do, they used to go on, on, on Google, screenshot, and then they think, I'm going visual. And then every image they've got is a different style. Yeah. Different colours, different style, different, uh, some are realistic, some are stylistic, lines are thin, lines are thick. And the students who read it won't be able to express it, but they will um, have an uncomfortable journey. That's why you never see it in magazines, they're consistent. So if you get an icon maker creating icons, they'll have an, a family of icons and they'll be highly consistent in their look and feel. Is there any... And I'm, I'm, this might be a ridiculous question, but if you're using the same word but in a different context, is it is there value in uh, that being the same icon? So you might have the same word in a different context, three lessons apart, for example. Should you use the same icon for that for that word? I, I don't know the answer to that. That's an area where I think a teacher will just use their their normal way they approach things to see what works and what doesn't. I think it's also what you want to draw the students' attention to when you were talking about picking your images. Um, and hands up, I've been very guilty of the past of putting a graphic on there because I thought it looked too plain. But actually, when reading your book, I really questioned myself and thought, how many times have I given students 
the wrong focus so I've put an image on there because I think it looks nice and makes the slide look nice but actually I'm drawing attention to something completely different so having a picture of say Romeo and Juliet on a slide where I'm trying to focus in and wanting them to understand the role of the friar I've confused them then given them the wrong message so what's reading your book what it's really helped me to do is have real clarity of thought in terms of what is the actual message of this slide and what are the students getting out of every slide as opposed to this is an overall scheme about something and that has been incredibly helpful to me to really pare back busy slides but also to not confuse the learners in my classroom and give across the wrong messages so that when they're in an exam situation or an assessment situation they can recall those images and that will trigger hopefully um, the knowledge from the lesson as opposed to focusing on a picture that really is not going to benefit their learning in any way that's exactly so the way you just described it is brilliant you've just been describing being designing an educational experience you've been talking like a designer well done <laughs> thank you <laughs> well that's actually the most gratifying of everything that i hear is that when you get past you know the grid system fonts the colors and all the graphic parts of it they're just an expression of a way to apply your thinking and so and the thinking is one is about knowledge and secondly it's about how do i design the experience of the students so it makes sense and it's memorable so it is designing if you add that aspect that i'm 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 really pleased that points come home you do training courses on on those training courses what what would you um, be hoping that the teachers left with? Well, briefly, my training course is three lots of 90 minutes when I do a full day. The first 90 minutes is about explaining. It's called Explain. And there I, I expand what I normally do in my research ed and short events. I get them to experience directly some cognitive science principles and, and research. Because in education, for too long, we've been presented with wonderful solutions. And when teachers go back to the classroom, they realise they actually don't have a problem that it, that, it was, that it resolves. So in the first session, as I do in my short sessions, I make sure that teachers suffer. They really suffer from what I've designed so they get overwhelmed or confused. Because that is, then they'll really have cognitive empathy with what it's like for students. And when they understand the invisible dynamics that go on in teacher's explanation, then they really listen carefully to, to solutions. In the second part, we look at organisation. Organisation isn't everything in education, but it's almost everything. Unfortunately, when in education, when we talk about organisation, we nearly always talk about either management or talking about children organising themselves in terms of turning up on time, satchels, enough sleep, which is fine but it's not cognitive organisation. So how do we turn little bits of independent bits of knowledge, of information, and make it into a coherent, connected whole, which is the role of organisation? No organisation, no meaning. To organise is to create meaning. Organisation both creates meaning, and it's a framework with which we can have access to a far more powerful retrieval power. And the third 90 minutes, and we go into graphic organisers then, uh, so there are four main ways in which we organise information. So we define, we chunk, we compare, and then we sequence and we find cause and effect. Um, and over 20 years of asking teachers, 
asking them to catch me out. I haven't found one teacher who's able to show me any part of their curriculum, their syllabus, in which isn't subject to one of those or a combination of those four ways of organizing information. Which means as, as, a, as a knowledge designer that teachers now are, they can analyze it with a far higher degree of incisive power and explain that to their students. And students will very, very quickly pick up, are there four ways to organize? Which way we use, which, which lens are we using now, sir, miss? And the third section about design. So, you know, the four basic design principles that I came up with, which were, by the way, not based on all the design books I've got in my library, but it was a question of whole class feedback. I know the mistakes teachers make. And so I simply came up with the four main mistakes and they became the principles. And so they become very obvious to teachers and they can, they can implement them straight away. Yeah, I want to um, ask you about sketch notes because um, I hadn't heard about sketch noting before and I read about it and I thought, what an amazing way to, to get across summaries of texts, um, recaps of, of uh, chapters in books. So I, tr I tried one for a Christmas carol with my year 10s yes. uh, and I showed it to my students. It's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but actually when I showed it to the students, again, they accessed it in a way that they never would have done with what I was previously doing. And they started to say, oh, miss, you could have placed this image here because this connects to this idea and it would have been clearer. Um, so actually I've set as a home learning task for my year tens to create a sketch note on stave one of A Christmas Carol, which they can then take forward to be um, revision material because they were just, again, accessing it so freely is that I think that's the word I want to say that freely it just got ideas flowing and the retrieval was quicker yes. than it had been previously so you know that it works and we've got the evidence to show that it works the bit of why it works is because human beings are unable to create most concepts unless they do it through metaphor and I don't mean metaphor in the sense that an English person would talk about it some literary device it's, for example, the idea that time is a line. Uh, we use these metaphors, we don't even know that we realise that we use all the time. And one of them is we regard ideas as objects. So the way those objects relate to each other is obvious. It's self-evident in front of your eyes. Otherwise, it's hidden within syntax. It's hidden. It's so much more difficult to discern, to... I, to know what's what and how it's linked and which is after and because you know you have a sequence in a sentence but it doesn't mean that's a temporal sequence that, that you're describing it's just so much harder but there's also a phenomenon that's been researched that when you introduce the ideas in a visuospatial format as you just described the understanding of the text improves subsequently because they know what they're, they're looking for yeah mm. and, I, and i can see that i saw that in the class straight away uh -huh. that, that they were just yeah accessing it so and actually i would say their willingness to engage with it was higher um uh, to be fair yeah. they're a lovely class um and they are motivated but rather than just look at a slide that was so dense and packed and or you know a whole sheet of just bullet pointed notes they yes. wanted to look at this and they, their eye almost wanted to jump on ahead as well. And I thought that was quite interesting. Why would they, 
they were eager to get to the next bit in the in the sketch notes and i just wondered why that was as oh. well well i think i'm guessing because they understand something when you understand yeah. you want to know what's next because you know it's the narrative i think what i've seen is that children become amazed at the power of their brain when they see that they can understand and recall information so powerfully to a degree they didn't even imagine was possible gives them so much confidence and it's always available it's always available yeah and i think that the the thing that came from the book most for for me is the responsibility that we have as information givers and i think we overlook that we rely too heavily on our subject knowledge at times and our ability to talk around information when actually we need to think about how that Mm. is designed and how we're getting that across to the students in the most effective way for them to understand not the most effective way for us to deliver it yes exactly so and that in a way is a contrast between academic writing where you meander and meander and at the end you get the conclusion and journalistic writing where you start off with a conclusion it's the reversed order so yeah if i were designing initial teacher training i'd include something on journalistic thinking and, and writing okay well that's that's what i do for my for my job i run an, uh, a skit oh. so I'd, I'd be interested to hear why what's your what's your thought process behind that well, because they continually run a research program um, in a commercial world. And if they fail, they go bankrupt. And although there's far more accountability in schools, they're, they're not faced with that type of accountability. And they've been working hard. And there's a whole profession looking at, um, and especially with computers now, we know where eyes go. We really, in minute detail, can study how people look at a page and they understand how long they go on it and when they move over. And journalists know how to write that way. And teachers, you know, when you go to space, you have a re-entry chamber. Yeah. After doing study at university, there should be a re-entry chamber where we detoxify you from the essay writing process, which is the wrong way around, and we introduce you to journalistic thinking. That's really really interesting. Well, I know that my... um... My students in the my current lot are having training from you on the 30th of April, which they are beyond excited about because I bought them all a copy of the book. So at least they will be uh, they'll oh, the next it? generation. And I'm I'm celebrating when I'm observing and seeing lots of icons and very simplistic slides and hierarchies in all their presentations. Um, so it is slowly seeping in. And I think if if there's anyone else on, the, on listening to this who is involved in ITT, I cannot recommend it highly enough for its um, usability, I think, for, for trainee teachers in terms of making sure the routines are in place early on in their teaching practice. It's one of those books that is, is such a cliche, isn't it? But I wish I had it 10 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> well, I said that earlier. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I feel it. I've made so many mistakes over the years and potentially confused students when I didn't need to. Mm. And yeah, it has genuinely changed the way that I present information to students so much for the better so yeah. much for the better so thank you that's so gratifying to hear that's because the book nearly didn't didn't take place I, oh, I didn't fancy this um but interesting you know what got me started i invited 35 people to uh to contribute to it yes yes and that's um a very eclectic list of people isn't it yes 
Of course, the ironic thing is nearly all of them would give a far better um, contribution if I'd finished the book first, got them to read it, and then they contributed. <laughs> That's, that sounds like a pitch to your publishers for a ne- for yeah, a next, for the book. next one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, well, I, I think it's um, been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, and I really do appreciate you giving up the time to talk to us. I've I've taken a huge amount I think that's I hope that's come across and your your knowledge is mind-blowing the amount you can recount uh, at hand is just amazing Um, I'm just older (laughs) (laughs) well thank you ever so much Ollie we really appreciate it yeah thank you thank you it's been a pleasure and been really heartening to hear your stories thank you so much top five time number one Simplify your PowerPoints. Avoid cluttered, multicoloured, busy slides. They only detract from the learning. Number two. Only include images which link to the topic being taught. Icons are best and stay away from photographs. They can include a lot of visual noise and don't add to your message. The Noun Project is a brilliant free site to explore for icons. Number three. Irregular dimensions to Comic Sans can make it more difficult to read. Instead, use Calibre or Vedana, a simple and clear font. Number four. Use visual hierarchies where possible. These allow students to make clear connections between events, ideas and themes. They are easy to process and understand. And number five. Research dual coding. It is based in science and has a proven track record of supporting all learners at all ability levels. Oli Caviglioli's book, Dual Coding for Teachers, is a great start, or his website, ollicav.com.